Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. I'm Shannon Bream. I'm Tom Shalhoub. I'm Maria Bartiromo. And this is the Fox News Rundown. Tuesday, June 27th, 2023. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. The White House says it's an internal Russian matter. President Biden says the West was not involved in a mercenary group's attempted coup. But some Republicans say whatever it was might have been a missed opportunity for Ukraine. When there is chaos, when there is uncertainty, it's actually an opportunity for us to double down and support our allies. Um, It is better for everybody, for the Ukrainians to win this war sooner rather than later. We speak with Republican presidential candidate Will Hurd. I'm Dave Anthony. Can the U.S. avoid a military conflict with China? This is the most comprehensive threat the United States has ever faced. Uh, in its history. And I'm Jason Rantz. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. White House officials said it's been known for some time the head of the Wagner Group was not pleased with Russian officials, especially the head of the Russian military and the defense minister. Yevgeny Prigozhin said Russian military forces had even fired upon his Wagner forces. So over the weekend, Prigozhin and his private military group began to march north toward Moscow. Russia's President Vladimir Putin said in a speech that this rebellion is treason. But then Prigozhin says he changed his mind after getting a call from the leader of Belarus, Putin ally Alexander Lukashenko, and that this wasn't a mutiny or a coup, but it had been a protest. President Biden said Monday he convened NATO leaders on a video call. They agreed with me that we had to make sure we gave Putin no excuse. May emphasize, we gave Putin no excuse to blame this on the West or to blame this on NATO. We made clear that we were not involved. We had nothing to do with it. That caught former CIA station chief Dan Hoffman off guard. He told Fox's America reports, Prigozhin is under indictment in the U.S. for online interference in the 2016 election. The idea that the Biden administration would have had anything to do with this mutiny is pretty preposterous. And frankly, I was surprised that the president even spoke to that. Uh, The Russians know that we had nothing to do with it. Putin knows that. And then as everyone was speculating on where Prigozhin was exactly, wondering if he was in Belarus, Putin went on Russian television. His speech Monday sounded like a victory lap of sorts. He said, quote, civil solidarity has shown blackmail and attempts to arrange internal turmoil are doomed to failure that the organizers of the rebellion betrayed their country and wanted to give, quote, neo-Nazis in Kiev and their Western supporters a Russian fratricide. But he also thanked Wagner Group members who stood down and praised some of them as patriots who he said fought for Russia in Ukraine. Putin said he'd keep his promise. Wagner members who want to go to Belarus can. Here's the facts of the case as I know them, right? Will Hurt is a former Texas Republican congressman, a former CIA officer, and now a Republican presidential candidate. I'll give you my opinion also as well as a as spending 10 years as an undercover officer in the CIA, primarily overseas. 
You know, my job was to stop terrorists from uh, blowing up our homeland and to uh, prevent Russians from stealing our secrets. So uh, knowing what the Russians are doing is something I've spent a lot of my career in. And then when I was in Congress, I was also on the House Intelligence Committee uh, providing oversight for our intelligence services. Um, Several months ago, um, the head of the Wagner Group was criticizing the Russian Ministry of Defense because he felt like he wasn't getting ammunition and the supplies that he needed. He also criticized some errant kind of um, red on red uh, friendly fire, in essence, that ultimately killed um, some Mm -hmm. of his troops. And so he's been critical of the the Russian Ministry of Defense. This has been building for a couple of months. Um, U.S. intelligence had information that um, it looked like he was going to make a move towards Moscow. Uh, You saw him moving some of his troops out of Ukraine and focusing them on a move to the area, the city where the Russians run the Ukrainian campaign. And then he had troops on the way, uh, almost two-thirds of the way from this town called Rostov to Moscow. And then all of a sudden he stopped, and the president of of Belarus uh, negotiated a deal between him and Vladimir Putin. Those are, I think, most people would agree on on those set of facts. What does all this mean? Ultimately, what it means is that Vladimir Putin does not have a rock-solid grasp on everything that's happening in Moscow. He is still the most important person there. Are we sure of that? Are you sure of that? Are you confident that Vladimir Putin does not have a rock-solid hold? Because there are a lot of suppositions, Mm -hmm. a lot of theories, a lot of people talking about maybe this is part of something bigger, that we don't really know everything. Are you confident that this shows cracks in, in his hold? Sure. So, so are, are you implying that Putin used, you know, his former, you know, uh, most important guy for some wild um, setup uh, for the international community to move Wagner forces? You know, I've, I've heard some of those rumors of that. You, you do not have to have set up this international intrigue in order to move forces into into Belarus. You could have done that just done it. You don't have to have this intrigue. And is there somebody else pulling the strings behind Vladimir Putin? There's there's no intelligence or information that suggests uh, that is the case. Um, the other thing that you didn't see is when the Wagner group was moving towards Moscow, you didn't see Russian regular forces uh, do anything. You didn't see them attack, but they also let them pass. So you didn't also see any of them join these forces. So the impact that this has on Vladimir Putin around the world. This shows a problem and that he doesn't have full control as everyone thought he has. The the reason I ask is because I think in in many of our minds, we're used to people who challenge Vladimir Putin uh, meeting a harsher fate than sure. the one we see maybe being meted out right now. Guess or maybe what? it's too early to say. No, but but look, we, we have to change our thinking of Vladimir Putin. We've thought that Vladimir Putin, since he came to power, was 10 feet tall and can do anything. You know, this is why everybody <laughs> thought at the beginning of the second invasion in February that this was only going to take three days for the Russians to make it to Moscow, right? We had to rethink that. The fact that the Russians have to rely on the Iranians uh, for 
more equipment and munitions, that they had to buy equipment from North Korea. Nobody would have expected that uh, two years ago. And so, so we have to change our assumptions about what's happening and, and know and understand what's on the ground. But here's what I would say, um, that when there is chaos, when there is uncertainty. It's actually an opportunity for us to double down and support our allies. Um, it is better for everybody, for the Ukrainians to win this war sooner rather than later. This is not a fixed situation. And and one of the things that I get frustrated with, um, the Biden administration said they're actively monitoring. Okay. There's another um, a word for actively monitoring that's called doing nothing. And we should be helping our allies as, as much as we can. And we also can't think that what we knew about Vladimir Putin two years ago, 10 years ago, five years ago, even three months ago is is in essence the same as what's happening today. You criticize President Biden, but you've also criticized some of your fellow Republican candidates, namely um, former President Trump and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, saying that you wish they'd, I think in DeSantis's case, stop you spending time fighting with American companies like Disney and be more interested in supporting our allies against, you know, attacks against democracy, I think was the quote. But there are, Congressman, a lot of Republican voters who are highly skeptical of sure. U.S. support of Ukraine and the spending that that's meant. So sure. what's the pitch to them? Because if you've got Trump and DeSantis saying, well, what are we doing here? You're telling them, no, we, we do need to spend this. Sure. And here's why. Here's why supporting Ukraine is actually in our best interest. It's in our best interest because the United States of America has built an international order that has benefited us. Uh, since World War II, we created a rules-based order that has allowed us to have the greatest economy in the world because we built situation where we have trading partners, we have allies, we have people that are buying our goods and services and our support. So that system has helped us. We have been the biggest beneficiary of that system. And so if we don't support that system, if we don't help Ukraine, then the rest of Eastern Europe is going to side uh, with Russia, Moldova, Georgia, countries like that. And then you're going to see Western Europe side with China. And we should all be concerned. I think it was two months ago when the French president, uh, Macron, was in uh, Beijing. And he gave an interview to a American paper in Beijing. And he said, hey, America, don't make France choose. Uh, and he was implying don't make France choose between between the United States and China uh, because we wouldn't like the option because they're going to choose China. And, and what does that mean to us? If the Chinese government surpasses us as a global superpower, which is their goal, that is not my opinion. That is what they have said about themselves since 2015. If they surpass us as a global superpower, then that's going to impact every single American. Our dollar is not going to go as far. That means our 401ks aren't going to last as long as we expected. Our kids and our grandkids are not going to be able to get the best paying jobs um, in the world. And this is the consequences that we have. That's why these things matter. Mm. Guess what? It's, it's complicated. It's hard. It's frustrating. But guess what? But we have to be able to defend our allies overseas and secure our border at the same time. And we can. We're the greatest country on the planet. That's why we, we have to be able to do all these things. And we have to have our leaders that provide a vision of where we should be going into the future. You just talked about kids and uh, our ability to compete and get the best jobs. I'm sure you just saw the nation's report card. 13-year-olds reading and math scores have plummeted. I'm wondering, I know you and I have talked about education before, especially preparing our youth for 21st century type jobs. What is your 
what is your reaction, especially as you've got candidates like Chris Christie saying education should be and will be the number one issue in the next 20 years? Look, we, we should be absolutely concerned. We should be concerned with the erosion our students saw after COVID lockdowns. We should be concerned that all of those numbers that you talked about are the worst they've been in this century. That's crazy. And then when you compare American students to their peers in other countries, we're like dropped out of the top quartile. And at a time, when math and science is even more important. Hmm. And, and so look, the, the, the impact that new technologies like artificial intelligence are going to have on our economy is going to upend every single industry, not in a decade, in two or three years. And we need to make sure the current workforce is ready for that. But we also need to be making sure that we're preparing our jobs, our kids for jobs that don't exist today. And we have a long way to go. Now, when we look at a place like Texas, where I'm from, look, I'm a proud product of Texas public schools. um, But I also believe that school choice is a good option. And when you look, there's been a longitudinal study done in Texas over 20 years, that black and brown kids in um, charter schools have eliminated the achievement gap with their white counterparts. Uh, that, sh- that shows that charter schools are working. So we need to have competition within our school systems. We need to make sure public schools have the ability to, to operate. And, and another scary stat, and I'll wrap it up with this, two-thirds of parents in the United States think our education system is on the wrong track. And here's what we should be able to do. Any kid in the United States of America, regardless of their age and location, should be able to have a world-class education. We can be able to do this. The states are going to have to step up because they have probably the the primary role um, in this fight. But yeah, everybody should be afraid um, that our 13-year-old kids have the worst math, science, and reading scores this century. Congressman... You've said you won't sign the GOP loyalty pledge, right? Um, if you don't make it to the debate stage, what's the what's your campaign going to be? What are what are you hoping for? <laughs> Look, so so the debate stage doesn't make or break candidates. It can't make or break. It doesn't always have to. You know whether the <laughs> rules stay the same as what we we know now. Look, I'm pretty transparent, pretty open. Um, you know, do conversations like this, and and as we evolve, I'm going to be explaining what my vision for the future is and how to do it. And and I take this. There's other ways to get that message out. Um, and 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 we with this couple of ideas we have. Um, if that if that pledge still stays in. All right. Well, keep us in the loop. Uh, Former congressman and current GOP candidate for president, Will Hurd, thank you so much for joining. Awesome. It's always a pleasure. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. This is Jason Rance with your Fox News commentary coming up. Right after the weekend uprising inside Russia by the Wagner Group's mercenaries, Russian leader Vladimir Putin got some backing from China. Its foreign ministry put out a statement saying China supports Russia maintaining national stability and prosperity. 
amid all the Chinese tension with the U.S., which Secretary of State Antony Blinken tried to defuse on a trip to China a week ago, meeting face-to-face with leader Xi Jinping. To disabuse our Chinese hosts of the notion that we are seeking to economically contain them. We're not. He also said they had vehement disagreements on several issues, as China warns the U.S. must seek cooperation, not conflict. And the Chinese rejected Blinken's attempt to reestablish contacts between the two countries' militaries. The relationship obviously has deteriorated over time, and particularly since the spy balloon incident. General Jack Keane is a retired four-star general, Fox News senior strategic analyst and chairman of the Institute for the Study of War. The military shot it down, and the tension in the Indo-Pacific region, South China Sea, the Taiwan Straits, the East China Sea, and the intercepts that they run against our aircraft and ships and with Taiwan. military is obviously much more engaged in the tension of this relationship than any other part of the government. So I think that's why they shut down not wanting to talk to uh, our Secretary of Defense. I do think while there's no agreement, I, I think it's really certain that probably President Xi and President Biden will meet either in the fall when the Asian Pacific Conference takes place in San Francisco or at the G20 in India and likely to happen this year. So yeah. that, in a sense, is uh, is a positive thing coming out of this. Yeah, let me ask you more about the military-to-military uh, contact between the U.S. and China. How often do our military leaders have a chance to talk directly to the Chinese military or any of our other adversaries? Not much at all. The Indo-Pacific commander, who uh, Admiral uh, Aquilino, a four-star admiral, uh, who's been in charge of the Indo-Pacific combatant command there for over two years, has never had a conversation with his military counterpart. They won't take the call. So there's very little interaction whatsoever. But what would they talk about, General? I mean, if they're a rival and, and maybe even an enemy of ours, why would we have a conversation? Well, we want to have the conversation like we did with the Soviet Union to keep the lines of communication open when there is such tension and there's potential mishaps to take place or miscalculations. So you could pick up the phone as a relationship of somewhat established that we have with other adversaries and talk to that person and say, look, this is what we're attempting to do. You are absolutely misinterpreting it, you know. Okay. That, that's kind of the basis. Be able to handle a crisis, knowing full well that, we are adversaries, and that communication in and of itself by senior military leaders is not going to change Chinese policy or U.S. policy. Now, a few weeks ago, we did have, General, an issue at sea. The military had called it unsafe. There was a Chinese warship that went across an American warship's bow only 150 yards away. Our destroyer had to make evasive maneuvers, and then the Chinese uh, warship stayed right there with us. And then there was an incident in May involving a Chinese fighter jet conducting what our military called an unnecessarily aggressive maneuver, intercepting a spy plane in international airspace. This is intentional, right? Oh, yeah, there's no doubt about that. China believes, wrongly, but this is what they're insisting on, uh, they believe the South China Sea, since they militarized it with their islands that they built out there, is sovereign uh, Chinese uh, waters. They believe the East China Sea and the Taiwan Straits 
or sovereign Chinese waterways. They believe they own the waterways in the Indo-Pacific region. There's no basis for that in the international community. Nobody accepts that. They're trying to wear us down and drive us out of the region. This is a region that they want to dominate and control. You've got to give some credit here. I don't agree with all the administration's policies when it comes to China. One of the things they've done, they've built on the Trump administration's policy of reaching out to our allies, and they have significantly strengthened it with South Korea, Japan, the Philippines, and Australia. I'll give me a couple of data points. Japan is doubling their defense budget. Very significant. The Philippines have given us the United States access to four military bases. Three of them are close to Taiwan. Very significant. Australia is permitting us to have rotational air power and ground power in Australia on a regular basis. All of this is a check on China. Plus, the United States, the United Kingdom, and Australia have come together and we're going to build nuclear-powered submarines for them. And the South Koreans have upped their defense budget as well. So I believe that their aggression going forward is going to continue to increase. We'll see more of these activities, likely not less of them. The biggest potential Chinese-American conflict could be over Taiwan. China considers the self-governing island its territory and angrily reacted with military exercises near Taiwan when then House Speaker Nancy Pelosi went there last August. And again when Taiwan's president came to the U.S. this year to meet with current House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. On his trip to China, Secretary of State Blinken reiterated, We do not support Taiwan independence. We remain opposed to any unilateral changes to the status quo by either side. A status quo that's been in place for decades. This is coveted in the 1979 Taiwan's Relations Act when Jimmy Carter reached out and recognized mainland China diplomatically and severed diplomatic relations with Taiwan in terms of having an embassy. And that act came together and said, China and the United States will maintain stability across the Taiwan Straits. Peace and stability is the intent. And while the United States will support Taiwan with arms and ammunition, the United States left it ambiguous whether we would defend it or not. Implied we would, but not stated. Yeah, President Biden also, recently said that he would defend Taiwan if they were times. attacked. Yeah. He said it four times. Now, the way President Tsai, and full disclosure, I've provided advice to her through a number of years up leading up to COVID, the way she has approached this thing of independence, she says, China does not want Taiwan calling for independence. They believe that will force them to take military action. What she says is, we're already an independent democratic state. There's no reason for me to make any appeal to be independent. We already are. That's the kind of language that she uses with her own people. 80-plus percent of the Taiwanese people think of themselves, even though their heritage is Chinese and their language is largely Mandarin, they think of themselves as Taiwanese. And so when the language of it, the, the word independence is a third rail in this discussion, this is all nuanced communication that's going on here. And it's laughable for them to say that the United States is the aggressor here. We are not. And there is a lot of concern that, that, that China could try to take Taiwan by force, and there could be a war in the five, ten-year window in the future. There's no doubt about that. And why do we have concerns about it? Because China has said that. And believe me, Putin had said the same thing, and we were very dismissive of him. And look what he did. China has said much the same thing. President Xi has said that 
if there's not reunification with Taiwan, that's another code word, which means that Taiwan would submit voluntarily to reunification, obviously intimidated and pressured and bullied by the China into it. If there's not reunification, in other words, voluntary reunification, then we would have to use force reluctantly to have that reunification. He has said that on more than one occasion. So I think it's prudent to believe him that he would use force. And we have to we've got a lot of work to do here because our military deterrence has been erosion of our capability due to the 9-11 wars and declining budgets, particularly in the Obama administration. And the reality is that we're in catch up here uh, with China in the region. We're the number one global military power on the planet. We've got 388, 84 bases. China has one outside the region. We can project power any place in the world. But when it comes to Taiwan, we're two weeks away from Taiwan, from the west coast of the United States. We're an ocean away from that war. It's off the coast of their country. And we're at a decided military disadvantage. This is the most comprehensive threat the United States has ever faced uh, in its history. And the fact that China is aggressive about this, that they're seeking control and influence, and they talk openly about it, we have got to be very serious about dealing with them. How worried should we be about the story we got a couple of weeks ago that China has a military-type spy-type facility in Cuba well, it's been an open-source reporting now, and there's been an update on that initial story that the capability that has been there at least since 2019, and in 2019, they expanded from one spy station to four in Cuba, and they're planning it. It's in the planning stages to establish a training base there. We have a Navy base there in Guantanamo Bay, and there is potential, obviously, for us to mitigate that risk by obviously doing some things that are classified in terms of disrupting their capability to monitor us. I, I, I don't know the full details of that, but generally speaking, there is potential for that. But what's really going on here? They know full well we have troops training inside Taiwan, which it, incidentally is 100 miles off the coast of China, and that we have key people visiting there on a regular basis, which causes the China to get very excited about it. So here we have a military establishment 100 miles off the coast of the United States, and they're likely going to put some Chinese troops there. Is that consequential to the security of the United States? I don't believe so at all. Uh, but nonetheless, it's intimidation. That's what China is looking for. They're very much involved in information and political warfare and trying to undermine the United States, and that's what this is about. General Jack Keane, retired four-star general, chairman of the Institute for the Study of War, Fox News senior strategic analyst. Always great to talk to you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Put the power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Jason Rance. What's on your mind? San Francisco has been in a rapid decline since the Black Lives Matter movement held the city hostage in 2020. 
Now we're watching the city die in real time. Without quick and substantive measures to reverse course, one of the nation's leading cities will become a cautionary tale against embracing the radical left's agenda. Bustling with tourists and locals enjoying the city's shopping district and high-end hotels, Union Square was considered the heart of the city by the bay, at least until 2020. That was when, coinciding with the COVID-19 pandemic, city leaders opted to hand over power to the radical left in the aftermath of the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis. There's been a mass exodus of the Union Square neighborhood's top retailers since, like Saxaw Fifth and Nordstrom, driven by the city's culture of lawlessness. Homeless addicts commit petty crimes to help feed their drug habit. Opportunistic criminals exploit lax approaches to crime. The Westfield Mall has emerged as the epitome of San Francisco's struggles. Aside from frequent theft, security guards have been stabbed, and a homeless person allegedly sexually assaulted a customer while hiding out in a mall bathroom. Westfield handed the mall to lenders as its retail shops abandoned them, and city leaders failed to deliver on promises, quote, to find solutions to the key issues and lack of enforcement against rampant criminal activity. Whole Foods closed its flagship store in the mid-market neighborhood. The store suffered frequent theft and angry homeless people. As I say in my forthcoming book, What's Killing America? Inside the Radical Left's Tragic Destruction of Our Cities, San Francisco's death spiral can be directly attributed to the radical left policies and approaches that were implemented after the famously far-left city embraced the BLM movement. San Francisco defunded police, diverting $120 million to fund black community initiatives. It was meant as a, quote, gesture of reparations for decades of policymaking. George Soros wannabe district attorney Chesa Boudin ended gang enhancements falsely characterizing them as, quote, infused with racism. Boudin also pushed too many criminals into diversion programs rather than jail where they belonged. Prolific offenders had little fear of punishment. Even if they were prosecuted, Boudin's office only had a 33% conviction rate in 2021 versus a 61% average from 2011 to 2019. San Francisco crime skyrocketed almost immediately with a 20% year-over-year increase in homicides in 2020 and then 17% in 2021 compared to 2020. Burglary shot up an astonishing 47% in 2020 compared to the previous three years. Homelessness worsened with police unable to arrest drug dealers or users who wouldn't be prosecuted anyway. It attracted out-of-town addicts who knew they could get a quick high without much hassle. Soon, tourists stopped coming and foot traffic from locals dwindled. San Francisco voters finally realized their city veered too far to the left. They pushed Mayor Lundebree to refund law enforcement and recalled Boudin from office in 2022. But by then, the culture of lawlessness had taken hold, and some still pretend there isn't a crisis. Far-left columnists from the San Francisco Chronicle downplayed the closure of Whole Foods, chastising political pundits for arguing it's a, quote, telltale sign of the city's apocalyptic doomscape. They blamed the grocery store for being in the wrong neighborhood. They even blamed shoplifting on the store, citing one worker who said the liquor section shouldn't have been by an exit. Still, the city is attempting to mitigate the threat and discomfort of walking downtown with a police crackdown on drug dealing and public use, but the radical left is trying to stymie progress. Supervisor Dean Preston demanded the city, quote, end punitive policies, specifically arresting and incarcerating drug users. Why? Because he says it will lead to more overdoses. Now, it's unclear how long city leaders can sustain pressure from the radical left, but if San Francisco is to survive, leaders must ignore the very radicals who brought the city to the brink. They must allow cops to do their jobs, push the DA to follow through on charges, demand nonprofit groups in the homeless industrial complex show meaningful results or lose funding, and offer tax credits to keep retail afloat while the crime and homelessness are contained. I'm Jason Rance. 
You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Hey, everyone. It's Kennedy, and you can listen to my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It's going five days a week on the Fox News Podcast Network. We're bringing you all the fan favorites. Listen on Spotify, Apple, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download podcasts. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.